We have Dr. Gina Wesley joining us from Minnesota to talk about how to better diagnose our patients with binocular vision problems. How do you think this is going to uh, affect, you know, your bottom line, your return on investment? Are you thinking this is going to drive more people into a therapy type practice? Is it going to help you sell more glasses with Prism? Like, what are you thinking? I, I know you're always thinking about return on investment when you do things. Um, from a business standpoint, but I know first of all, it's always detecting and helping the patient, but I know we don't bring things into our business unless there's an ROI. So where do you see that? So the first thing is obviously I want to catch more kids that would potentially have these issues to bring them in then for a full, what we call visual skills evaluation. So that appointment is a cash pay appointment because I don't take insurance for my vision therapy as a separate company within my, my business. Mm -hmm. So that would be step number one. And then I would plan on using the right eye system for a more full diagnostic testing scheme so that we get even more information and expand. Not unlike the concept of you run a screening OCT, you have them back for more full testing when you detect a possible problem or issue. Then obviously the kids that have the issues and problems, I'm, I'm hoping this technology really helps to educate parents and helps them to understand issues and problems that their child is having with their vision and always, always relating that back to this is why your child skips words or letters. This is why it's difficult for them to really have good comprehension. You know, there's so much effort being put into the physical act of reading because they obviously don't do it very well at this point in time. Mm -hmm. So obviously then if that parlays into them engaging in therapy, I'm really thinking if I can engage probably four to five additional patients a year, this system will have paid for itself. Today I'm with Dr. Louise Clefani on the Optometric Insight Show. Kind of an interesting history, Louise. Like I still even remember too, like, so when I think about um, female leadership and particularly early on, I, I remember seeing you and Chris Sint all, always, always there. And you always seem to be battling and debating contact lenses and cornea. Um, and uh, and what, what stuck out in my mind was at the time, you know, you're talking 18, 19 years ago, you were talking about a platform where it was really, um, from, from an outsider's perspective looking in, it was really owned a lot by, you know, male leadership. And you two were, you presented a different perspective, everything. And, and I think over the last you know, 10, 15 years, you guys have just really perpetuated leadership and you've always been these awesome role models. Like I see you guys both at GSLS with younger practitioners and, and I just see how important it is for in particular young female um, optometrists to have mentors and leaders like you. Um, how important do you think it is and what role um, have you actively played and, and has anybody ever kind of even come up to you, Louise, after and said, like the story that I just gave you, like, you know, this is why I started doing X, Y, Z. Well, you know, you're being very kind, Mila, because um, Chris is actually almost a generation younger than me. I graduated <laughs> in 1989. And yeah, you're right. There weren't a lot of female role models. In fact, when I applied for, had my first interview at University of Chicago, I had a female ophthalmologist say to me, uh, why aren't you at home having babies instead of <coughs> seeing patients? And at that point, I was like, this is not where I'm going. I mean, I, I, this is not my path. My path is to do both. 
And so I was very fortunate because I was single and I had the ability to really perpetuate my, my uh, career and had, uh, was in an uh, educational institution, University of Chicago for so long where they allowed me to have that freedom to do so. And I remember going to academy meeting and um, I saw a lot of role models there, one of which was Loretta Schotka, yeah. um, Christina Snyder right. and, and others. And I said, you know, I want to be like them. I want to yeah. be the role model. And I like to surround myself with smart people. And it happens to be that most women are the smart people these days. Um, gotcha. Uh, but I, um, but I, you know, and I think though that I had that opportunity. I was Today we're going to be talking with Dr. Stephanie Wu on Wu University, starting a specialty contact lens practice and practicing in small town USA. So are, are you still at that practice? Is that still what's going on? You know, you became an owner, I assume. And then what was the journey for the last couple of years in ownership? Yeah, so only, so I owned the practice with my my partner and at the time. And, and uh, you know, going through life and going through your career and kind of sometimes you take those moments and you, you, you step back and kind of evaluate things. And um, in my current practice, I had, so I had three locations. Um, two of them were satellite offices that took an hour or two hours to drive to. And I was doing that, you know, every day, waking up, you know, 5 a.m. with the time change, got to get there by eight, uh, then see patients all day. And a typical schedule for me is like 30 to 50 patients uh, and, and, and then come home. And so I just after doing that for like almost 10 years, I just kind of thought, is this do I see myself doing this forever? Is, is, is this something that? I, I really want to do. And, and, and then I just kind of actually asked a lot of friends that do a lot of specialty lenses kind of picked their brain. And, uh, and so I just thought, you know what, I'm just going to think about this. And if I had the perfect practice that I would love showing up to no money aside, who cares? Yep. Let's just pretend money's not a factor. What would I truly get excited about? and passionate about where it's like, I would just enjoy that day. Right. So a few things came to mind. Of course, specialty lenses came to mind. The days that I have a huge packed schedule of specialty lenses were, were always the days that I was so excited mm. about and passionate about. Yeah. Um, and the things that didn't excite me were like optical. Owning and managing an optical is a lot, and there's some people that absolutely love yeah. it. I'm joined with Dottie Fidel today. You're, you're, you, you really kind of sprung onto the scene as a scleral lens expert, and really what you've added from a knowledge-based perspective is unbelievable because I think you offer two perspectives. One is that international perspective, but two, just the content, the information that you always deliver is unbelievable. Like, what... What propels you, somebody who, I mean, I, I'm assuming you're probably in a busy practice, you're fitting patients with scleral lenses. What kind of takes you and motivates you to now say, I want to contribute to this more than just the patients that I'm caring for? Like, I want to take this to the next level and, and help educate other practitioners, help, and not only in Italy or Europe, but I mean, I see you at GSLS, I see you at all the conferences. Like, You've, you've taken it to the next level. Well, what kind of inspires you to do that? I really don't know. I, I just feel it. I think it's passion. So I, I discover things. I 
uh, that's exactly what happened at GSLS. I learned so many things. I, I felt that I cannot keep these things only for me. I have to transmit it for other people. And that's why I, what I wanted. I wanted to bring that word here in Italy and in Europe. I want everyone to discover this thing, not only for um, a personal uh, for a personal uh, purpose as a practitioner, as as me as practitioner and other people, but the benefit that uh, these lenses can give to our patient. They need them. Yeah. I just finished an application now. For a normal um, cornea, the, um, my patient had uh, a normal cornea, but high astigmatism. He wasn't at all happy with the spectacles. He tried with soft contact lenses. He wasn't happy. His vision wasn't, uh, wasn't stable, and he was so frustrated. Today, we're joined by Dr. Karen Cadiskio from Boston Sight. We're going to be talking about myopia management with scleral lenses how to increase the efficiency in your contact lens practice. So let's speak about two of those, uh, particularly, uh, maybe all of them. So scleral lenses for myopia management, uh, those lenses are already being used in, across, the, across the world. In some places, they're, they're more frequently used in the United States. But how, how does that really fit in, right? Right now, people are wearing scleral lenses or wearing lenses while they sleep at night. Are you suggesting that kids sleep with scleral lenses or is it something they're going to be wearing during the day and then they can take them off and see? How does that work with scleral lenses? To be um, honest with you, I personally don't have um, much experience with the application of um, myopia management with scleral lenses. I know uh, some people mm -hmm. in Europe have used uh, scleral lenses for that application, a mm -hmm. dear friend and colleague, uh, Daddy Fidel. Has yep. used the, uh, have used those um, for that application. Um, so I wouldn't be able to really comment on that. I just know that um, it seems that um, it's plausible. And mm -hmm. it seems to me that we're going to be learning more in the years to come about a potential application, even with scleral lenses. We know definitely with corneal lenses, but you know, maybe we can expand on what we already have today um, with yeah. sterile lenses, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, I think the place for for people who haven't really given this a thought, they might think that scleral lenses are an overkill in the arena of uh, orthokeratology or for myopia management. And I think there's avenues with regards to myopia management, both from the uh, putting the optics on the front surface of the lens to create that asphericity that a patient could wear the lens all day long. We have Dr. Selena McGee from Edmond, Oklahoma, talking about cosmetics and optometry. So, so there's then products that you can get here in the US because the lack of bans on them, but you wouldn't be able to sell that product in Europe because the contents of that makeup just wouldn't be allowed to be sold there. Is that, that, am I, that, that that's a correct statement, wow. That is correct statement. Wow, wow, wow. And it, you know, the FDA hasn't touched the Cosmetic Act since 1938. So you're allowed... Do you think we've learned anything since 1938? Or... <laughs> just, a, just a few things, right? <laughs> and so there's so many things that our, our patients are utilizing that is either causing dry eye disease and upsetting homeostasis on the front surface or sabotaging our best intentions when we're treating our patients. 
And so it's super important for us to be comfortable talking about those types of things because they're not getting that information from, you know, the Instagram person that's getting paid on the other side to talk about the product. Right, right, They're, right, right, right. So that piece is a, a very um, easy way to like to, to dip your toe into cosmetics. You know, and the reality is we all fit contact lenses. Most of us have an optical. So those two pieces are in fact cosmetic. I mean, a lot of our patients want to change the way they look, whether it's with new glasses or because they don't like the way they look in glasses, they want to wear contact lenses. So we're already in this space. I'm just building on it and expanding. And Selena, do you you have any specific recommendations for makeup options for patients that, or for practitioners that are looking for things that are less likely to disrupt the homeostasis or less likely to cause some of these issues? Definitely. So it's really hard to look for one brand. So teach people to look for certain ingredients and to seek out, you know, more clean makeup lines. And one that comes to mind that I actually do carry in my practice is Eyes are the Story. We're speaking with Dr. Elise Kramer on how to become a contact lens specialist, particularly in the areas of scleral lenses and myopia management. Where is this going to fit into our practice? Higher order aberration scleral lenses. Yeah, I think this is a great uh, technology. I don't think we're quite quite there yet, but I'm looking forward to it because I do have a lot of patients, for example, keratoconus, those people have vertical coma. And unfortunately, we can't neutralize all of that with a scleral lens right now. You know, and there are some technologies available, but I'm excited for this to be available with most, if not all labs, kind of like Hydropeg just kind of like is available every lab. And I think that's a great technology too. And I think that this will be wonderful add on for people who are, you know, they're seeing 2020 on the high contrast Snellen chart, but they may not have exactly the vision that they were hoping for. And it's frustrating. And I've seen a lot of patients frustrated with this. And there's only so much we can do with, you know, sphere and cylinder. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. uh, and, and, you know, changing, you know, uh, basic fitting on, on a scleral lens. So I'm looking forward to having that technology and for it to be available at all labs. Yeah. So, you know, I think we were, we were taught in optometry school that the benefit of a rigid or a scleral lens is to neutralize the front surface of the eye, which for keratoconus patients is where the vast majority of their aberrations are irregularity. And we're able to substantially reduce the aberrations that they have. But, you know, when I was in school, and I know, you know, even when you were in school, we didn't really talk a lot about this posterior cornea and the so many of the aberrations that were there without an instrument like a pentacam or uh, something along those lines that you're measuring that posterior surface. You don't, you and I don't know how much of the aberration is really there. Today I'm joined with Dr. Leslie O'Dell, where we're going to be talking more specifically about the medical optometric model. Share with me in the audience really kind of what you're doing that's, that's just a little bit different than the traditional optometric model. Absolutely. Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me. It's always fun to get a chance to kind of chat with you. So thanks. Thank you. Uh, Medical Optometry America is really uh, a new, really think of it like a new brand in eye care. We've been hearing from industry 
for years now that we have to really embrace our medical side of eye care if we want to survive the online threats um, that are happening with retail, um, whether it's optical or um, contact lens threats. And so for me personally, my career has always really revolved around ocular disease. I did a residency through the Baltimore VA and spent um, the first half of my career working along um, an, in an integrated practice alongside a cataract and LASIK surgeon and really didn't spend a lot of time doing refractive care. We didn't have an optical. I didn't fit contact lenses. Um, and then I jumped, jumped into an optometric setting, a private practice to focus really on their dry eye needs for, for the past um, four and a half years and realized quickly that contact lenses were more complicated than I remembered in school <laughs> and also and also that it wasn't really what um, was my favorite type of patient to see you know that routine patient really because I was frustrated by lack of dilation in those patients or lack of them understanding disease and really not having the time to learn it you know during that time all they wanted were their contacts or their glasses and so for me the routine patient just became kind of frustrating. Um, and I was really seeking what other opportunities might exist out there. And that's kind of how I um, found Medical Optometry America. Today, we're joined by Dr. Roya Habibi, and we're going to be talking about life outside of optometry and developing a work-life balance. So you have now, at this point, fast forward five, six years of being in practice, um, one of the things I remember when we first got to know each other is that you like seeing the world. You're an adventurous type of person. You like the outdoors. Uh, have you felt that optometry has been a good profession for you for doing those sort of things? Or do you feel it's really tough to get away? I mean, sometimes when it's like, you know, a beautifully sunny day and you're sitting there with your dark your windows closed and you know, you're there all day long and barely can get time to, for a lunch break. I wonder <laughs> why did I do this? But other times I think it is really conducive to it because you can let me know if you, if you figure out your schedule, right. And if, especially when you work in, in a group, it is really nice for that is that if you do want to take a vacation and you schedule things out properly, you can take a vacation and you have the ability to do that. And a lot of people couldn't make that option. So I do think that it's helpful and it provides the means to be able to travel like I'd like to be able to. Mm -hmm. What other things do you consider outlets for yourself? When you think about living life, what are the things that you do outside of friends and family uh, that are your life? What, what, what are your hobbies and so forth? Oh man. Well, right now my hobbies are all gone because I'm renovating our first home. Another great resource of being able to be a doctor. But um, I think the big hobbies are like, you know, being able to like see the good in any place you are, right? You might not be living in your favorite city at the moment, but you can always explore a new part of town or, you know, leave early on a nice day and go sit at a park or, you know, go visit a new Go visit, you know, go a different direction than you normally drive and just go see what's out there. Go visit a street. Today I'm joined with Dr. Susan Gromacki, where we're going to be talking all about the lids. Um, are there any contraindications that you see, Susan? Like anything where you're like, this is not a good candidate for this because of X, Y, Z? 
Well, I mean, first you have to separate out the urgent referrals. I think that's extremely important. You know, you don't want to let something, you know, like a third nerve, nerve palsy, Horner syndrome, myasthenia gravis, you cannot yes. let those go another day yes. if that's what it is. So obviously, you know, when you're thinking about ptosis, you want to first, you want to know how long the patient has had it. You want to know if there's any pain associated with it. And then you want to check pupils and you want to check EOMs and always ask if the patient sees double. Because if you see the combination of ptosis with a pupillary abnormality or ptosis with an EOM or diplopia issue, that, that could be an urgent referral right there. If it's a ptosis, which is longstanding, if the patient is a GP lens wearer, for example, um, then you can probably be assured that it's not pathological, doesn't require urgent referral, and then you can proceed from there. Yep. It's, um, it's interesting too, Susan. Sometimes the position of the eyelids can even trick us just a little bit too. We've had some recent uh, thyroid eye disease patients where when you look at them first, it actually looks like they have a mild ptosis on one eye when in actuality they have a proptotic eye and the other eye that's actually causing lid retraction. So sometimes I think just as important to identify the reason for the ptosis, it's also important to um, kind of pay attention to the fact that it may actually be a lid retraction as well too. So differentiating that, differentiating that I think is important as well. We're going to be talking with Dr. Melissa Barnett on genetic testing for keratoconus, presbyopic eye drops, and eye care advocacy. You know, your passion around contact lenses has, has been something that has driven you. And I know that both of us are big on advocacy and getting involved. Um, I know you've been on the AOA board. You're going to be going into the chair of the contact lens section and so forth. Talk to us a little bit about how you got interested and, and, and why you spend an incredible amount of time doing this. It is a huge time commitment. And uh, tell us about your, why that drives you, what, what it is about that that you know, leads you to want to be involved. So I think our profession is amazing and there are so many different aspects that we have in our profession. So you don't have to be in clinical practice. You could do a variety of things. But since we are a legislative profession, I find that volunteering is really, really important. And it actually started at my local level. I was society president many, many years ago. And then, you know, just kind of grew and did different things. So past president of the Scleral Lens Society, an upcoming chair of AOA CLCS, but I think giving back is really important. And at this point, I think it's wonderful to have the ability to lift others up and bring them in and really help our profession because it mm -hmm. is an incredible profession. Mm -hmm. What uh, What are some things that you encourage people do to to for to get involved? You know, if I'm a, a young practitioner, you know, how do I get involved and in, and in, you know be part of this? Sure. So find your passion, you know, whatever you're interested in, whether it's low vision or pediatrics or dry eye or contact lenses, and either find a society or volunteer with your local society. I'm joined with Dr. Maria Walker talking about why things get so foggy. Maria, so just to, just to break that down a little bit. So you're looking at scleral lens wearers that are those foggers. And again, we know we had those foggers, we have those non-foggers. So you're looking at the ones 
where that fluid is physically foggy, and we see that on OCT, we see that at slit lamp. And now you're analyzing those patients and asking what's different about these people, correct? Yes, exactly. So we have patients who don't have fogging because you always want to have some sort of control so you can see if it's not there. Um, And if you look at those and compare those to the patients with fogging, that's what we do. So I think last time we talked about the lipids. And so we found that the balance of basically it's there's a lot of free fatty acid lipid types of things. So things that are very hydrophobic. Um, And we also found specifically that the ratio and this was something I don't think we had known last time. The ratio of unsaturated to saturated lipids is actually increased. Um, And so that was a super interesting finding because one thing that you definitely know and I know from clinic is that we tend to see it more in our dry eye patients. And so if you look at dry eye patients, they have a very similar sort of dysfunction of their lipids and the ratio of those that are saturated and those that are unsaturated are different. And if you kind of remember to to biology, right? We know that some some lipids are uh, solid at room temperature. So it's those ones like the buttery lipids, not the oily lipids that are more prevalent in in the midday fogging. So that was lipids. So that was number one. So wait a second, Maria. So abnormalities that were seen in the dry patient, you're actually seeing those similar ratios of lipids in the foggers. Exactly. Exactly. And they're coming from the meibomian gland. 